And as we think about the cause of Christ, let me invite you to open up with me this morning to the Word of God. We're in Acts chapter 6 today, and as we open up the Scriptures, any elementary kids that want to participate in children's worship are welcome to gather uh, out in the foyer at this time for the beginning of our children's worship time. But we're in Acts chapter 6 today, and looking at a text that teaches us and shows us about deacon ministry. We've just set apart Eric for this particular task, and so we want to hear what God says about this role. We want to hear how God provides for the needs of the church. We want to hear what it means to faithfully serve in the life of the church, and our text today, I think, guides us in that way. And so as you find your place there in Acts chapter 6, would you join me standing whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of Scripture, God's holy word. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The Bible reads this way. It says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Would you pause with me for prayer? And, oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your spirit who guides us, who instructs us, who leads us and helps us that we might understand and apply your word and walk as your people. So, Lord, help us to do so now. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Well, just a bit about the road ahead for us on Sunday mornings, as we look at God's Word, as many of you know, we've just finished up a portion of the Bible. We've just finished up the New Testament letter of Ephesians, walking through Paul's letter to the first century church there in Ephesus. And today we'll be looking at this text in Acts 6, and next week we'll be revisiting this text a bit and considering the role of a pastor. And then we'll take several weeks, uh, a few weeks, to join in an Easter uh, series on discovering Jesus, looking at selected texts from the Gospel of John. So no, that's where we're going. And then after Easter, we're going to come back and we're going to look a little closer at the role in the office of pastor or elder or overseer in the life of the early church. Uh, but we believe God has extended salvation to us by His grace, leading us to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, giving our lives to him. That's how we began our Meadowbrook Church Covenant, a statement on salvation and the way in which to 
receive it. It's by grace through faith in Jesus. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Would you just say that with me this morning? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now you know it. One more time. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What is grace? Brian Chappell, pastor and theologian, uh, uh, describes grace this way. He says, grace, God's saving grace, grace justifies guilty sinners like us so that they have Jesus' guiltless status before God. Grace justifies guilty sinners so that they have Jesus' guiltless status before God. This is what we celebrate. Do you know that, church? This This is why we gather This is why we sing. This is the message on which the church is built. This is the gospel that we take to the world, the truth that God calls us to be about. We want to be about the gospel of grace. And praise God, He enables and equips us to be about His His grace. That's what I want us to see from Acts chapter 6 this morning. God enables and equips the church to preach and practice grace. God enables the church... Enables and equips the church to preach and practice grace. Like, here's a moment we just read about in Acts chapter 6. Here's a moment in the life of the early church where the message of grace is spreading. The good news of salvation in Jesus and the importance of repenting and believing in Him, it's going forth. But the people in the church face a real test to see if they're going to practice grace. Like, they're preaching it. Are they going to practice it with one another? By the way, this is the first time in the book of Acts that the word disciples is used to refer to believers, to refer to Christians, explicitly referring to those that are coming to faith in Christ. A word that that, in, that encourages and speaks to following Him, to walking with Him, to giving our lives to Him, like we sang about a few moments ago. We're going to live for the cause of Christ. We want to follow him. And right here in Acts 6, we read about what could have become the first church split. Like grumbling and complaining in the church there in Jerusalem. When believers complain against one another, Satan gets excited. And we, we looked at spiritual warfare, passes the armor of God last week, and Satan's role, the enemy's role in striving to attack, attack the church, attack the people of God, distract them from knowing and following and living for Jesus. He he sees a chance to gain a foothold. And so right here for a moment, Satan gets pumped. Like seizing the opportunity to fan the anti-gospel flame of division in the church. A chance to encourage those who profess faith in Christ to dishonor Christ and squelch the church's witness. Meadowbrook, disunity dishonors Christ and threatens the church's witness. Disunity among believers dishonors our Lord, our Savior, our head, dishonors Christ and threatens the church's witness. That's what's going on here. A rift between two groups of people in the early church. A rift between the Hellenistic Jews, meaning those whose primary language was Greek, And the Hebraic Jews, those whose primary language was Aramaic. These Hellenistic Jews were Jews who had been previously scattered from 
Palestine. In other words, they lived abroad, lived in areas where Greek was the dominant language and, and culture. And even though they've lived abroad, they've now resettled in Jerusalem. And here these particular, particular Hellenistic Jews have put their faith in Jesus. They've become part of the rapidly growing church there. But because of their time abroad, some for generations, there were cultural distinctions between these two groups. And these differences now result, we're told, in receiving less food than the Aramaic-speaking Jews. So what's supposed to be a, a ministry of love, right? caring for the needy widows in the church, becomes the center of disunity in the church. I don't know how this played out, but I'm, I'm imagining these widows in need coming through the food line and being served uh, food and the Hellenistic Jews receiving a bit less food, or at least perceiving that they're receiving Less food, or perhaps it's that the Hebraic Jews who are being served by people who have stronger linguistic and cultural ties naturally receive more food. That's the perception that unfolds, perhaps unintentionally. See, in other words, people naturally flock to, toward others that are like them. We know this. It's easier to connect with those who speak the same language and are part of the same culture. And that's probably what was taking place here in the life of the early church. But as a faith family, we've just learned in Ephesians that Jesus does quite the reconciling work in uniting otherwise different people. Different and disagreeable folks. Christ makes us one. We don't, we don't make ourselves one. Sin divides. But Christ unites and favoritism has no place in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may recall, remember back to how, how Paul applies this saving grace of God to the multi-ethnic church of God in Ephesians chapter 4. After spending three chapters really driving home what God has done for us and reconciling us to himself and to one another by his grace, he says, I urge you to live a life Worthy of the calling you have received. What does that look like? What's a life worthy of this calling, this position before God? He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Well, here in Acts 6, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is threatened over food for widows. And unfortunately, this is not the last time that the unity of the Spirit or the bond of peace has been under attack in the church. Such grumbling in the church is all too common. So, church, let's pray for church unity. We know from the Word that God brings us together as a family of faith, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ does this work. Just pray that we would live it out, that it would take root in our lives. Let's pray regularly for church unity. See, when sinners commit to life together, it's messy. It is. It's like a family that's committed to one another. Good times and hard times. It's messy. Our sin nature runs deep. And even though Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin, we still wrestle with the presence of sin in our lives. But our good God is gracious 
and he enables and equips us to preach grace, and not only to preach grace, but also to practice grace. And when the grace of God penetrates the hearts of the people of God, those people begin to be gracious to one another. Disunity dishonors Christ and threatens the church's witness. So let's be a people who pray for church unity. Let's pray as Jesus prayed for us. The prayer of Jesus to the Father, praying, this is what he said in John chapter 17, that all of them, meaning all believers, all who come to faith in Christ, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus prayed that we'd be one. Do you pray for the church? I mean, really, do do you pray for the church? Be honest with you, be transparent with you. This, This morning, far too often, I act as if this depends on me. As if the measure of the church's health, if the church is doing well, well, I must be doing well. If the church is struggling, I must be struggling. The Spirit does this work. May we cry out to the Spirit of God day in and day out, inviting Him to draw us near to Him and near to one another, loving and serving and caring for one another. Let me just mention one way, one place that might be helpful for you in your prayer life. That would be our church's prayer room. Place to get away place to be led to pray in particular ways, certainly for the church, not just for the church here, but for all sorts of opportunities, even the unreached around the world. I don't spend as much time in that prayer room as I should, but I've never regretted spending time in the prayer room. Let's be a people who pray. Let's cry out to God that we would be one as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. May we constantly acknowledge our dependence on God. This is His work, right? This is His plan. We are His people rescued by His grace and privileged to proclaim and practice it. God enables and equips the church to preach and practice grace. How does He do so? Well, we see here that Christ equips His church with the people necessary for unity and growth. Jesus equips His church with the right folks for this to take place. Right? These people that gather in this place week after week are not... This is not my church. This is not your church. This is Christ's church, the bride and body of Jesus Christ. And as His church, He's committed to us. This is good news. He will not leave or forsake us. But He owns us and He supplies what we need to live and to thrive in Him. Jesus gives His church the people necessary for unity and growth. Who are these people? Who does He give? Well, to begin with, Jesus gave the twelve, verse verse 2. He gave the twelve, also called, in verse 6, the apostles. This would be the, the original twelve whom Jesus invested in, minus Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Him, plus Matthias, who replaced Him. And here in this particular text, at this juncture, at this point in the history of the early church, their primary focus is on leading the early church, devoting attention to preaching, to proclamation, and to prayer. Once again, we've just come through Ephesians, and there's a text there that, that helps us think about who 
some of these leaders are in the early church. In Ephesians 4, a text that mentions several groups given by Jesus to serve and equip the church through a ministry of the word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. So Christ himself, Jesus gave these. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, all having a ministry of the word to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so for a time, the 12 apostles would serve as the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. But they would soon be scattered to make disciples beyond Jerusalem. Many of them would be sent out beyond Jerusalem. Others would join them for a similar ministry and role. And as disciples are made and churches are planted, pastors would soon fill this responsibility of leading local churches. In other words... Preaching and prayer ministry, the preaching and prayer ministry of the apostles anticipated, I think, the ministry of pastors, shepherds. Here's what I'm saying. So though the ministry of the apostles was not altogether the same as the ministry of pastors today, the ministry leadership of the twelve, as characterized right here in Acts chapter 6, provides a paradigm for pastoral ministry. In what ways? Christ calls pastors to prayer, preaching, and spiritual leadership. Christ calls pastors to prayer, preaching, and spiritual leadership. Now, as noted before, the New Testament terms pastor, elder, and overseer, three separate words in the New Testament that are used in other texts, are used interchangeably. And notice, more on that soon, but notice here, there's shared leadership. More than one of these in this local church. Leading the local church under Christ's authority, modeling Christ's character, caring for the body of Christ, and teaching the word of Christ. Pastors are servant leaders who shepherd the church to follow Jesus. That's what the apostles are emphasizing here, the ministry of God's word and of prayer. They're faced with a church problem. They meet, discuss together a possible solution to this problem, and they present their recommendation to the church. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples, that is the whole church, all believers there, together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, I'm going to focus more next week, as stated, on the role of pastors. But for now, notice the distinction in responsibility. And the apostles, the twelve, are not saying we're, we're above this find someone else. No, they're saying we cannot neglect the foundational and laborious ministry of prayer and preaching. Christ calls pastors to prayer, preaching, and spiritual leadership. So, church family, ask God to give wisdom to your pastors. Ask God to give wisdom to those that have been called to shepherd, to pastor in the local church. Ask Him for wisdom. Ask God to give wisdom to me to lead in ways that honor and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask God to give wisdom to our ministers here. Church, there's a lot, a whole lot. I assure you, there's a lot. I don't know about pastoring a church. I think 
I think I know a little bit more than I did in 2013 when you called me to pastor. And I know shepherding Christ's church is a weighty thing. A burdensome joy. And may it always be so. May it always be a weighty thing. It's a tall task. A tall task. Which I nor anyone else can do sufficiently. Apart from God's constant presence and enabling grace. But praise God, He supplies. He is sufficient and He is good. And He has enabled and equipped the church to preach and practice grace with the people necessary for unity and growth. Christ calls pastors to prayer, preaching, and spiritual leadership. And we see here, Christ calls deacons to help care for the church's practical needs. Christ calls deacons to help care for the church's practical needs. Now the word deacon isn't in this text, but the related verb is translated to wait on or to serve in verse 2. Deacon means servant. One who ministers to and cares for Others And just as the ministry of the apostles in this passage provides a paradigm for pastoral ministry, so the ministry of the seven provides a paradigm for deacon ministry. Deacons serve by meeting needs, by supporting the ministry of the word, and by unifying the body. So there's an, an unmet need here that arises in the early church. And the apostles call the church together and they say, verse 3, Brothers and sisters, believers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So the seven chosen are spiritually mature, qualified to administrate this practical need in the church. See, according to the Bible, deacon ministry is not a glamorous thing. It's not a glamorous thing. It's a servant thing. We thank God for servants. Brag on one of my kids for a moment. Don't always get to do so, but I'll take just a moment to do so. I won't tell you which one, but one of my kids yesterday evening... Uh, wanted to help serve dinner. Uh, and this particular child is just sort of happy-go-lucky. You probably figure it out on your own. Happy-go-lucky, just enjoys life most of the time until he doesn't, and he really doesn't. Sort of settling into that middle child role. Well, there, I told you, giving it away. And so he wanted to help serve dinner and fill plates, and so he, he did. He was excited about it. Getting cups and drinks, and then after he had done so, he starts to sit down to eat. And he goes, Wait, I didn't get my own drink. I forgot to get my own drink. Forgot to get my own. And I told him, I said, Well, that's what that's what happens when you serve others. When you serve, it's not about you. You're serving others, and you're consumed with serving others. And sometimes you forget about self. You put others before self. I said, That's a good thing. It's good to serve. Church deacons are humble servants who help care. For the church's practical needs, they're servants, and we ought to thank God for them. Thank God for humble servants in your church. 
It's being a people who thank God for giving us humble servants in the church. Now, deacon ministry varies from place to place. It's not the same everywhere based on the particular needs of a congregation. I think this is why, by the way, that the New Testament doesn't say a lot about deacon ministry. There's freedom to apply this as needed from place to place. But in our context here at Meadowbrook, deacons, deacons serve communion. Uh, deacons serve our widows. Deacons, deacons put together a banquet for them every year. Deacons follow up with visitors. Deacons are assigned family ministry responsibilities so that they're in touch with those who are part of the body to be available to pray for and to care for them. Deacons do a whole host of things, coming alongside our ministers, praying for us, praying for our church, responding to needs as they come up. And church, God has provided Eric Canals to help meet needs and care for people in this church. Praise God for that. Praise God for his provision and praise God for Eric's willingness to serve. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus that he equips his church with the people necessary for unity and growth. And I'm not just talking about pastors and deacons. I'm talking about you. Christ calls all to serve and support the church's ministries. Christ calls all to serve and support the church's ministries. Anybody notice the the grounds this morning? Go ahead and act like you did if you didn't. Yeah, you did, you did. Because they look good. And the reason they look good is because many from among you came yesterday and gave a couple hours sprucing up various flower beds and gardens with mulch and pine straw and cleaning up many hands on deck from four years old all the way to senior adulthood, right? I won't call anybody out, but there's a couple in the back this morning. Grateful, many hands on deck, serving in many ways. It's a microcosm of the way the church is to operate all the time. Serving, contributing, working, for the good of one another. You may not be a pastor or deacon, but you have a role to play. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And notice here in Acts chapter 6 that the whole church has a role in this thing. It's not just left to those charged with leading, the apostles, the the leaders. They come up with a ministry plan and they present it to the whole congregation. Verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. There's a democratic process playing out here with every member of the body having a say in this. This is why church membership matters. The overseers are leading the congregation to recognize and to set apart and to affirm deacons, much like we have done leading up to today. We Baptists believe that the Bible emphasizes congregational polity, democratic processes, and local church autonomy, giving members of the church at large a role, a significant role, in character recognition and a voice in leadership selection. So the leaders make a a recommendation to the church and, verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. 
The whole church participates in a special called business session to address a ministry need. Of course, that's one way that we're all called to serve and support the church's ministries, but it's certainly not the only way. Christ gifts each of us to minister to one another for the church's good and growth, for unity in the body. Jesus gives ministers of the word in order, Ephesians 4, verse 12, to equip his people, all of them, to equip his people, to equip the church for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And notice the result here in Acts 6. God's Spirit grows the church in depth and in breadth as the gospel goes forth, calling unbelievers to faith and transforming believers' lives around God's grace. God enables and equips the church to preach and practice grace. See, the message that God has entrusted to us is the message of salvation. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And every one of you has a key role to play in preserving and proclaiming and practicing this good news of grace. So brother or sister, maintain gospel primacy in your church. Maintain gospel primacy in your church. May the gospel be front and center. All of these things are things that we could begin to apply right away. Praying for church unity, praying for wisdom for pastors, thanking God for humble servants in the church. These are things that we ought to immediately do in our own prayer life. But here's one that's ongoing forever and ever. May we maintain gospel primacy in the church. Christ and his gospel always front and center here among us, like it was then and there on that day in Jerusalem among them. That's what Acts 6 is about. That's what healthy church leadership is about. That's what the church is about. Preaching and practicing the gospel of grace. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to build my life on this gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. O Meadowbrook, may we build our lives as the Spirit leads on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God, help us to do so. Or lead us to do so. Guide us to believe the truth of this message that is so countercultural, or that is so counter our sin nature. Father, help us look to you. Help us fixate. Lord, fixate our eyes. Don't help us. Do it for us. Lord, lead us to fix our gaze upon Jesus, your Son, who is our Savior, now and forever. Lord, lead us to preach and to practice grace in all that we do. Guide us for your glory. Lord, lead us even now to respond, to sing your praise, or to confess our sin, to express faith in you. Guide us now. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.